Francis Schaeffer once said that where Christians differ, there is a golden opportunity to show the world how we love one another. That where Christians differ, there is a golden opportunity for us to show the world how it is that we love one another. And I think that statement is built kind of on a, a twofold reality. That what uh, Mr. Schaefer would have known and is that the gospel is deep and our ability to understand it is limited. And the diversity within the church and the differences in the church and, the, and our ability to comprehend this part but not this part or this part and not that part. At some point, there is going to come among the church great disagreement. That wherever there is diversity, wherever there is different worldviews, wherever there is different upbringings, wherever there is differing levels of understanding of the gospel, there is bound to be in that place disagreement. But the second fold, the second aspect, the second layer to that is really beautiful. That even though we are diverse, and even though we may disagree, and even though at times conflict may even arise among us and opinions may differ between us, that those are opportunities for us to show the world how unique, how transcendent, how powerful the bond of the gospel is among us. Amen. That even when our diversity and even when our differences and even when our disagreements don't divide us, it proves the staying power of Christ and him crucified. It proves the keeping power of the gospel, that the gospel can transform sinners in such a way that they can coexist together even in light of great disagreement, even in light of profound differences. You see, brothers and sisters, the church has become famous, but she has become famous for a lot of the wrong reasons. I fear that most churches in most places are more famous for how viciously they fight rather than for how ferociously they love. Such was certainly the case in the church at Corinth where we're going to be looking at today. Paul writes these letters to the church at Corinth and he's writing these letters because within the church of Corinth there was great diversity and, and very, uh, very wide-ranging uh, backgrounds and understandings of the gospel. And he writes because the church of Corinth is constantly finding itself at odds with one another over differences and over disagreements and over issues that they don't fully understand or appreciate. And so Paul gets to the end of chapter 12 and he's been talking about the spiritual gifts and he's been talking about how the, the, the hand needs the, the arm and the leg needs the head and how all of the body fits together that we have been baptized together into under one head, Christ Jesus. And he comes together and he says, look, I know this can be a source of disagreement. That some of you are arms and some of you are legs and some of you are, are mouths and some of you are hands and feet. But I want to show you a more excellent way. I want to show you a more excellent way. And so verse, but the chapter 12 ends with Paul telling the church at Corinth, I want to show you a greater way than all of this division. I want to show you a greater way than all of this conflict. I want to show you a greater way that sings more loudly of the gospel, that sings more loudly of the glory of Christ, that proves more, more obviously the effect of the gospel and the power of the gospel to overcome every single remnant of brokenness and sin in the world. 
And so church family, if you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 may very well be one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible. There are unbelievers that read this definition of love, this expression of love, this, this poetic, uh, this poetic uh, description of love, and they agree with it. Because it is that beautiful, it is that profound, it is that powerful, and it is that true. This may even be a passage that many of you have memorized. And so I, as we endeavor to go over the next five weeks in our Love One Another series and, and emphasizing this uh, core value of emphasis for 2017, I can think of no greater place for us to start than literally in the love chapter of the Bible. So would you stand with me as we read this God's word together? First Corinthians chapter 13. We'll read the whole chapter. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I, I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part that I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his all-sufficient and inerrant word this morning. Now what may shock you this morning as we look at this famous passage, this, this couldn't be more familiar passage, what may shock you this morning is that this passage is not about the love between a husband and a wife. Many people have this book, have this chapter of the Bible read at their weddings and they're, they're well to do. It is a great definition of love and it certainly is a definition of love between two Christians. But that is not primarily the context for which Paul is speaking here. This is not even uh, primarily speaking of the love that God has for us. It is not in his first mind, in his first priority to speak here of the love that God has to us. Though certainly these words speak of how God loves us and flow out of how God loves us. Now what may be shocking to us is that the love chapter of the Bible is written to the church. 
And it is written to describe how the church is living out that new commandment that Jesus has given to his disciples. The new commandment that I read to kick off of our, off our service. A new commandment I give to you that you will love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. And so 1 Corinthians 13, the most profound chapter in all of the Bible to describe love, the one all of us go to get our definitions of love from, hopefully, is intended to describe the love between brothers and sisters in the same church. It was written to a church. It was written to a church in dis disagreement. It was written to a church in frustration. It was written to a church that was frequently divided. It was written to them so that they might look at themselves and say, are we fulfilling the new commandment? Are we living our lives as Jesus would have us live? Are we loving one another with the kind of love that the cross and the gospel has called us to? Now, many of you have been a part of the church for a long time. I've realized uh, in the recent weeks that I've been an active part of a church for at least, I've been at church all of my life, but I've been particularly faithful and involved in church for about the last 20 years of my life. And I wonder as we think through our own church experiences, is 1 Corinthians 13 the way we would describe our relationship with the church? When we think of, of, our, of how we have encountered the church and lived in the church and been taught in the church and been trained in the church and been led in the church and related to one another in the church and been cared for in the church, is 1 Corinthians 13 what comes to mind? See, I think for a lot of us, when we think of church, it becomes synonymous with pain. It come, becomes synonymous with, with heartache. It becomes synonymous with frustration. It becomes synonymous with sin. It becomes synonymous with hypocrisy. We could continue to go down with any list of words. But what Paul is saying is that if the church is not synonymous for anything else, if the church is not famous for anything else, if the church is not seen and known and understood for anything else, the church must be known. The church must be synonymous with love. Isn't this a beautiful vision that Paul paints for us of the church? Isn't this a beautiful vision? Brothers and sisters, can I just tell you, that's a vision worth us fighting for. That's a vision worth us fighting for. That's a, that's a vision worth us, worth, worth us coming together and pursuing together and working together. That vision is so glorious. It is so stunning. It is so beautiful. It is worth us putting down our differences, putting down our disagreements, putting down our frustration to run after that with all of our hearts. Because let me just tell you, the way Jesus designed his church was to fill a need in your life that no other group of people can fill. No fraternity or sorority, no bar or coffee house, no social club, no work friendship, not even family can step in and fill the gap that the church leaves in the life of the believer. That the church is given to us as a gift of grace by Jesus Christ himself that we might endure together and persevere together and spread the gospel together and take care of one another by demonstrating and displaying gospel love in the life of our fellowship. So brothers and sisters, I cast for us this morning the same vision that Paul does. 
I believe we have grown exponentially in our ability to love one another. I really do. I believe that we are a more caring church, that we are a more loving church, that we are better at ministering to one another than we have been in the four years that I've been here. But brothers and sisters, we've got work yet to do. We've got work yet to do. And as much work as it takes, as much frustration as you may feel at times, as much, as much, as much angst may well up inside of you sometimes, as much, as much frustration with your brother and sister as might be there, this is a vision worth running after, church. This is a vision worth running after. So Paul, in those first three verses, he begins to kind of frame up for us so that we can kind of make sure that we're aimed right. But you know, the church can be busy doing a lot of things and the, the church can be, can be working hard at a lot, of a lot of things. But sometimes we get so busy and we get to working on so many things that we kind of lose aim, right? We kind of get off target. We've kind of begin to shuffle priorities and start majoring in the minors and minoring in the majors, right? Such was the case at the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth, great vision had arisen over their understanding of the spiritual gifts. And so over these spiritual gifts, they would see like, like the Christian that had like the gift of service, he's kind of like low on the totem pole. And then the Christian that had the gift of tongues, he's like super Christian 2.0. And so they would, they would kind of, the way they structured their church and even apparently the way they took the Lord's Supper together was often determined by rank in the world and by rank in their minds according to the spiritual gifts. And so Paul is writing here to undermine all of this. So in verse 1 he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. See, Paul there is talking about those gifts in the church that excite us the most. He's talking about those gifts in the church that excite us the most. The, the church at Corinth loved the gift of tongues. It was exciting. It looked spiritual. It was emotional. It, it, it seemed as though God was, was beaming something from heaven into a, a brother or sister that made them apparently be of a greater spiritual value in the life of the kingdom than everybody else. And so it was charismatic and it was exciting and it was just fun to see and fun to watch. And you know what Paul says? Paul himself says that he speaks in tongues in chapter 14, but he says here, he says, if I speak in tongues but I don't love, I am nothing better than a symbol without an orchestra. I am, I am as aimless, I am as pointless as a gong that has no accompaniment. As a matter of fact, there, he's likely alluding here to pagan worship. And Corinth at the pagan temples, what many of the pagan prophets would do is they would go and they would have cymbals or gongs and they would beat on them loudly and with, with no rhyme or reason, trying to arouse the attention of the false gods. And so what Paul is saying to the church at Corinth is as spiritual as you believe this gift is, as exciting as you believe this gift is, as emotionally you feel this gift, it is as pagan worship. It is as though you are a false prophet worshiping a false god if it does not come from love. See, the church at Corinth, they would frequently speak in tongues, but not to the betterment of the body, not to the spread of the gospel. They would do it apparently to look spiritual and to be spiritual and to appear as though they had a, a walk with Christ that other people didn't have. In other words, they did it in a way that was devoid of the purpose of the gifts and devoid of love for the body of Christ itself. In verse 2, 
He shifts gears. And if in verse one, he talks about those gifts that are most exciting. In verse two, he talks about those gifts that are perhaps most prominent. He says, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. What is he talking about there? I think what Paul's talking about here is he's talking about those preaching gifts, those teaching gifts knowledge, the ability to, to lead with, with prophetic influence and prophetic preaching, the, the ability to, to rightly divide the word of God and to preach it and to teach it in a way that is compelling, that would cause the body of Christ to want to follow and to want to take action and to want to do those things. And he said, look, as good as it is, Paul at one point calls prophecy, he believed the greatest of the gifts, greater than the gift of tongues itself. He said, but if I speak prophetically, if I can divide and teach the Bible as the best teacher or the best preacher that has ever lived, if I can, if I can rouse the uh, congregation to follow me to greater heights than they've ever known, but I have not love, I am nothing. I am nothing. It does not matter my leadership capacities. It does not matter my theological competencies. I am nothing if I do not love. Now, as I was thinking about this, I started thinking, you know, a preacher without love is like a grenade without a pen. It's volatile. And at some point, it's going to leave carnage in its wake. No, the aim of preaching, the aim of teaching, the aim of the prophetic gifts, the aim of gospel knowledge is for the purpose of building up the body and sending out the body to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. In verse 3, he speaks to those who appear most pious. Those who appear most pious, most devoted to the faith. He says, um, if I give away all I have... And if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. I gain nothing. He's talking about those, he's, he's probably speaking in hyperbole here, but many in the church at that point are, are beginning to undergo great persecution and losing their families. Many of them in the years ahead will in fact lose their lives. And Paul says, you may appear to be the most devoted you may be one that has abandoned his livelihood for the good of the church. You may be one who has abandoned uh, his, his, has been abandoned by his family because you have identified with Christ. You may even be one who has delivered up to death in the gospel. But if you do not love, it was worthless. Your sacrifice was pointless. The essence of it, the, the fundamental matter of it was not something that God has put in you. It was not something that God is blessed and honored by. In fact, many of the Pharisees would say the same words. See, brothers and sisters, if you wake up early to read your Bible, and if you memorize great amounts of Scripture, and you can pray for two, three hours at a time. You, you can, you can uh, sell all of your house and give it to the orphans among somewhere or to the advancement of some missionary cause. But if it is not coming from love, if your heart is not filled with love for God and love for the kingdom of God and love for the church of God, then it is all aimless, worthless, powerless, pointless. Was it not Jesus that said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice? 
When those things emanate from passion, when those things emanate from love, there is no greater picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when those things originate from some other motive, from other, some other source, they heap wrath on your head, not blessing. You see, brothers and sisters, if you think about the three commandments of Jesus that, he, that were most prominent in his life, we would think about the, the greatest commandment, right? The commandment that Jesus said was greater than every other commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and with all of your soul. He said the second greatest commandment is just like that one. It comes out of that one. It is to love your neighbor as yourself. In John 13, he said, a new commandment I give to you that you would love one another. And by this, the world will know that you are my disciples. And if you think about those three commandments that were the most prominent in all of Jesus's life, in all of Jesus's teaching, in all of Jesus's ministry, the essential ingredient to each one of those threes is love, is love. And so if there is no love in your heart, if there is no love for one another, if there is no love for the church, if there is only puppy love of love or flirting love or shallow love or superficial love, in you is not the love of Christ. In you is not the heart of Christ. You've missed it. I wrote it out like this. Holiness without love is self-righteousness. Worship without love is idolatry. Preaching without love is oppressive. Evangelism, evangelizing without love is selfish. Knowledge without love is prideful. Friendship without love is cheap. Brothers and sisters, love is essential. Let us be famous at Iron City Baptist Church, not for our preacher, not for our singing, not for our rules, not for our programs. Let us be famous at Iron City Baptist Church for our love demonstrated by our relationships and our kindness to one another. You see, love is the storm-proof glue that will hold us all together. There's going to be storms that's going to come. There are going to be hardships that are going to come. There's going to be disappointments that's going to come. There's going to be frustration that's going to come. There's going to be irritation that's going to come. There's going to be anger at times that might even come. The storms are going to come, brothers and sisters. We are broken people living in a broken world trying to pursue sanctification together. It's just going to happen. It's going to happen. But the one thing that can bond us through it all the one thing that can endure the storms, the one thing that can get through the rocking boat in the midst of the waves, the one through that thing that can see through the other end of the foggy night is love. Love is the storm-proof glue Christ has placed in each of us with his spirit to hold us together for the good of his mission and for the good of one another. So as he segues kind of into the second part of what he's saying, having set it up that way, moves into kind of verses 4 through 13. And there, it's really neat the way that Paul writes this. In describing love to the church at Corinth, in defining what love is really intended to be, Paul doesn't use adjectives. Those are usually the words the, that we use to describe things, isn't it? Like that's green, that's blue, that's big, that's small. But Paul doesn't use those kinds of words to describe love, does he? Paul uses verbs every time. Fifteen of them. Fifteen verbs over the next few verses. Because why? Love is actionable. 
Love is active. Love is dynamic. Love is fluid. Love is not sedentary. Love is always seeking opportunities for expression, isn't it? So let's look at some of the ways that Paul defines. I wish we had a lot more time to go through all this. We could have done literally the whole series just on this one passage of Scripture. But first of all, Paul says that it is a gracious love. That it is a gracious love. Now look, if we're honest, not everything that Paul says is super exciting. Not everything that Paul says is the kind of thing that we get really fired up about. He kind of leads off. Love is patient. Now, how many of y'all woke up this morning, came to church and said, man, I hope I have the opportunity to demonstrate patience. How many of you in your marriages are excited about opportunities to grow in patience? None of us. None of us, right? The, the, the famous thing, this famous cliche is, is you never pray for patience because God's going to bring somebody or something in your life to teach you patience. There is nothing more unnatural in all of our lives than to be patient with other people, is, it? is there? But if we're called to be patient, what does that mean? That means that sometimes our brother or sister is going to annoy us. If we're called to be patient, it means that there are some times that we're going to want to move a forward in gospel advancement in some way that maybe we can see and our brother can't, and we're going to feel held back. And we're going to have to be, man, i got to be patient. Sometimes it may be that our brother or sister is still growing in the faith. And we look at them and we're like, man, you don't see it. You're not getting it. And what is it? It's an opportunity for patience. Not only does he say love is patience, but he says it is not irritable or resentful. Well, that'll bless you. What's he saying? It's going to be irritating, y'all. Sometimes you're going to come together in the church and you're just going to be like, I don't even know why I got here today. I don't even know why I feel like it. I, I don't even, I'm mad. My blood sugar's low. I've had a rotten week and here I am and y'all be irritating me. Y'all hassling me today, Right? The only reason that Paul says that love is not irritable, irritable is because our tendency is what? To be irritated. To be, to be irritated with one another and to react in a way that is unbecoming of the love of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To react in a way that does not demonstrate to the world our love for each other. In fact, he says that we are not to be resentful. And the word resentful, your, your translation even may say something along these lines, is that it doesn't keep a record of rights and wrongs. The idea of resentful, the word resentful there, is a word that is used in scorekeeping. That, that I know how many times you have sinned against me. I know how many times you have annoyed me. I know how many times you have frustrated me. I know how many times you have irritated me so that that way I know the proper proportion, the amount of cold shoulder I need to give to you. I know, I know in proportion the, the proper amount of sass that I need to bring into your life that's in proportion to the amount of frustration and irritation. And as that goes up, so does my sass, Right? So does my gossip. So does my frustration. So does my faction. What is he saying? Love doesn't look like that. Not gospel love. Worldly love, sure. Puppy love, yeah. Fleshly, superficial, shallow love, sure. But not like that. 
Because true love, is a, the cost of true love is pain. It's pain. It's sorrow. What compelled Jesus to endure the brutality of the cross? The pain of the cross. Was our Lord and Savior not compelled there by love? And if we are to go in his likeness and we are to go in his image and we are to exist together with his love, should we not anticipate the same thing? Y'all, being in a church with each other for a long time is sometimes it's gonna be painful. Sometimes it's gonna be sorrowful. Sometimes it's gonna be frustrating or irritating. Anytime you get 300 people together with different backgrounds and different opinions and different theological understandings on different things, there are times there are gonna be differences, brothers and sisters. But love if I can repeat myself from, other, from earlier, love is the storm-proof glue that will hold us together in the midst of all of that. In the midst of all of that. Y'all have been patient with me. Man, y'all brought me in here when I was 27. That don't even sound like good sense. And I've said crazy stuff and I've done crazy stuff. And here you are. And you love me. And I love you. And we've gotten through it. And probably at some point in the future, I'm going to offend you again or hurt your feelings again or, or neglect something again. And what is it? It's a golden opportunity for us to show the world the difference of the love of the gospel. I've, I've said one of the things that I've said most often in counseling, one of the things I've said most often to you is that the only way a group of sinners can coexist under one roof is with grace. That is as true today as it has ever been. The only way Iron City Baptist Church is gonna hold together and press on and accomplish great gospel good and advance the kingdom of God here and to the ends of the earth, the only way we are gonna fulfill our vision of making maturing and multiplying disciples of all nations is if we are gracious with one another, if we manifest among ourselves a gracious, patient, long-suffering, forbearing love for one another. Brothers and sisters, that is a dream worth fighting for. Not only is it a gracious love, but it is a selfless love. It is a selfless love. He says that love is kind. Love is kind. What is kindness? It's caring about how you come across to somebody else, isn't it? It's caring about how somebody else is going to hear you. It's caring about not just getting them the truth, but getting them in the truth in a way that is, that is, that is, that is helpful and beneficial to them. Kindness is seeing the need in your brother, seeing the need in your sister, and seeking to meet it with your own resources. That is kindness. It's selfless. It's self-sacrificing. It's self-deprecating. It's, it's putting down what is easier for you to do what is better for your brother or sister. It is putting down what is most profitable for you to pick up what is most beneficial to your brother or sister. He says it does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. The gospel love is a humble love. And it doesn't boast because it understands that the only thing that I have are those things that Jesus has given me. I'm not worthy of any of them. 
And it does not envy. Why? Because it wants the best for its brother or sister, even if it's to its own, its own sacrifice. It is living out the Philippians 2 value of seeing others as being more significant than yourself. And so if you have what I don't have, I'm not envious of you. I'm happy for you. I celebrate with you because God has let you demonstrate that kindness. And I know that you are going to use that kindness for the goodness of his church. He says, it does not insist on its own way. Now, y'all, we could just stop and have a whole sermon right there, couldn't we? I read that and I come under conviction. That love does not insist on its own way. How many churches have crumbled because it was filled with people that insisted on their own way? How many marriages have collapsed because there were two people and both of them relentlessly insisted on their own way? How many friendships have ended because both friends were unwilling to humble themselves and continued insisting on their own way all of the time, wanting their preferences, wanting their philosophies, wanting what they wanted implemented, implemented as they wanted it done? See, we are naturally resistant people. We naturally believe that our way is the better way. Our norm is the better norm. And so what we find in our lives that is, is this unloving tendency to insist that it be our way and our preferences and our desires. Sometimes this looks like insistence, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push my preferences to the front of the line. I'm going to be the loudest. I'm going to be the most critical. I'm going to make sure that everybody knows where I stand and what I think. Other times it's seen as resistance. That if I don't get my way, if I don't get what I like, if I don't get to enjoy my preferences, then I'll just withdraw altogether. I'll protest it. What are both of these? Both of these are pride. Both of these are, are, are vices of the enemy that come and contradict the love that Christ Jesus has placed in every single one of us. It is a selfless, gracious, patient, forbearing love. I wrote this question down in my notes. Is the love that you have for your church determined by whether or not things are done in the way that you prefer them? Is the love that you have for your church determined by whether or not things are done in the way that you prefer them? Or is your love humble and kind and selfless and unifying? Because at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, church is not about uh, programs. And it's not about ministry philosophy. It's not about Sunday school or home groups or this or that. At the end of the day, church is people. The church is a people. And if, the, if a tornado came and it wiped out this entire campus and this entire facility, wherever Iron City Baptist Church regathered, there would be the church. Whatever programs we had or didn't have, whoever was there or wasn't there, there would be Iron City Baptist Church. So let us love one another selflessly. Let us love one another in a way that is humble and unifying. Thirdly, he says that it is a joyful Lord, a, a joyful love. He says in, uh, he says in verse, uh, verse 6, he said, It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. 
that there is truth in the life of the church that is to lead us to joy, to joy. It is to not be a place of oppression. It is not to be a place of constant sorrow. It is to be a place that is there for the sake of our greater joy in Jesus Christ. It is there to be a source of our joy in our relationships with each other. I like the way he says it later uh, at, when he kind of summarizes those first few, those, that middle section of verses when he says, it rejoices with, uh, it believes all things and it hopes all things. It believes all things and it hopes all things. You know what he's speaking of there? A collective optimism for one another. A collective optimism that it's hoping, it's, it's believing that, that Christ is going to continue to transform the church, that Christ is going to continue to use the church, that Christ is going to continue to hold the church fast, that tr- Christ is going to mature the church in godliness, and that Christ is going to use that church, us, here in rural Alabama, with whatever we've got, to the, go to the ends of the earth and plant churches there and raise up disciples there and to minister and to encourage one another. It is to have a collective optimism because your love for your brother knows, lets you know that what he brings to the table is going to make you better and what you bring to the table is going to make him better. That whatever God has poured into you, him, he's going to pour into you and whatever God has poured into you, you're going to pour into him. And so because of that, you bring all of your spiritual giftings, you bring all of your background differences, you bring all of your diversities, and rather than your diversities being divisive, now your diversities diversities are empowered to work within the life of the church to advance the gospel and to bring good into the life of your brother or your sister and their family. Now, y'all, that's exciting. That's exciting. Because there's a lot of things that you know that I don't know. There's a lot of things that the Lord has equipped you to do that I can't do. There's a lot of experiences that many of you have that I don't have. And the Lord is gonna use those for my good. And there's a lot of things that maybe I can do. Some giftings that I can bring to the table. Some insights that that I have. Some experiences that I have that you don't yet have. And the Lord is gonna use those in your life for your good so long as they abide together in love. I wrote it, uh, I started thinking about this in the life of, uh, uh, of my own life and how other brothers ha- and sisters have, have brought good into my life so that I, I can kind of have this collective optimism for each of us. And I could have wrote this uh, for really any number of relationships that I have within the church, but I decided to, I've got a group of five other men that I meet with on a regular basis and we just, we're trying to just run after Jesus together and we're pretty flawed and sometimes we're better at it than we are at others. But I started thinking about that group of men. And I started thinking about how God has used them already over the last year in my life to make me a more faithful Christian. And I started thinking it, especially in the life of their spiritual gifts. And spiritual gifts were what had divided Corinth. And I wrote it down like this. James has the gift of faith. And he helps me to rest in God's sovereignty. Daniel has the gift of exhortation. And he urges me toward greater devotion and seriousness in my Christian walk. Keith has the gift of mercy. And he comforts me with his prayers and his kind texts. Andrew has the gift of discernment. And he helps me to see situations and decisions clearly. Chris has the gift of service. And he challenges me to put actions with my words. You see, brothers and sisters, our our, uh, love for each other leads us to a more God-centered, Christ-centered life. 
And by leading us to a more God-centered, Christ-centered life, it is simultaneously leading us to a more joyful life. That as we get to know each other and we relate to each other and we, we share experiences with each other and we disciple each other and we worship with each other, we at the same time increase one another's joy. You know, this morning, I, knew it was, I know it was a little bit strange to come in and what we did with, with Bible study groups. But you don't know why we did that. We didn't do that because we wanted to make the morning more complicated. We didn't do that because we wanted to make the morning more complex. We didn't want to do that to make you uncomfortable or awkward. The reason that we did that is because we want to increase your joy. We want to increase your joy. There are people in our church that have great value to add to your life that you haven't met yet. And there are people in our church that you're going to add great value to their life and they don't know it yet. And so both of you are here in covenant together in love of Christ Jesus, bound together by the glory of his gospel to increase your own joy in him. And so yeah, it's confusing and it feels weird sometimes. But brothers and sisters, for the sake of joy, for the sake of love, Let's get to know each other. Let's spend time with each other. Let's, let's step outside of our relational circles, as good and rich and beautiful as those are. Let's bring new people in. Finally, and quickly, he tells us that it is a never-ending love. That it is a never-ending love. This may very well be the most famous part of the most famous verse. In verse 8, when he says, love never ends. Love never ends. In other words, spend your time doing any other number of things on this earth, and when you come to the end of your life, you will realize that that thing has come to an end. Even with your spiritual gifts, as good as those are, one day when we enter into the eternal state, no longer will there be spiritual gifts. You won't need faith. You'll see. You won't live in hope. You'll know. You won't need to speak prophetically. You will be in the presence of Christ himself. You won't, there will be no need for preachers, only worship, altogether exalting Christ. But forever, forever you will love. Forever you will love. Forever you will love one another. Forever you will love the church. Forever you will love Christ. Forever you will love the gospel. Forever you will love grace. Forever you will love the word of God. Forever you will know love. So Paul is calling us back to center. He's calling us back to center. And he's saying, you're dividing over things that are temporary. You're dividing things that from the eternal scope will ultimately be proved to be menial. Major in love. Major in love. Because when you step into glory, your love will just go deeper. Your love will just go richer. Your love will come to bear in total fullness. Iron City Baptist Church, this is something worth going after. This is something worth pursuing. Let us love one another. Let's pray together.